And I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, and this is the Word of God. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Stephen Prothero, who is professor of religion at Boston University, I uh, was witnessing some of his work recently and was just interested in some of the cultural analysis that he had. He was commenting on what he believes is the primary impulse of religion in America today. And I agree with his assessment. He says, it isn't about orthodoxy, meaning it isn't about belief in truth. It's about whatever works. Whatever works. There was a man who was taking a business trip to Arizona, and he was from the south, and he always wanted to see the Grand Canyon, so he worked it out in his schedule to be able to take an extra day and, and go over and see the Grand Canyon while he was uh, in Arizona. And so he had his car rented, and he drove up to the Grand Canyon, and there were just people everywhere, you know? He was just one of the throngs of folks observing, but he, he could not believe how huge the Grand Canyon was, how deep it was. But he brought his video camera, and he was going to take some pictures for his fam, some, some footage for his family. And so he's riding down the road, and he had this, this urge to experience the Grand Canyon alone and not be with all those people. And so he parked his car on the side of the road. He walked over the fence, the, the, uh, the guardrail, uh, to way back to an area right by the canyon. It was very steep. He took his video camera. He's talking to his family through the video camera, and he wants to um, look over the edge and film how steep it is. And he is talking about this, and he's craning his neck, and the ground gave way under his feet, and he was in free fall. And miraculously, he grabbed onto the only bush sticking out of the sheer cliff of the Grand Canyon. And there he is hanging there one-third of the way down. And he immediately says, out loud, he says, God, if you're out there, save me! And a voice from heaven answered him, I am here. Let go of the bush and I will save you. He thought for a moment, hanging there, and he said out loud, even louder than the first time, is there anybody else out there? <laughs> now we laugh, but let me tell you, that is the temptation in our life with God as well, when we don't like what God says. And it certainly was the temptation that Abraham felt when, when God commanded him to sacrifice his only son. Oh, is there anybody else that wants to say something to me? This doesn't work for me, God. But that is not what Abraham said. John Lloyd Ogilvie says that modern man 
if he believes in God, has the tendency to think of God as a benevolent figure whose main concern is to make man feel good about himself. But what happens when things come into your life and happen to you that don't make you feel good? Then what do you do? I mean, if that's what God's job is, and that's what it's all about, then what do you do? Well, God, I don't know if I'm going to believe in you anymore. I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble to the Religion and Self-Help section and I'm going to find me another God. And there's about 10,000 right there on two aisles that you can find. And um, the truth is, we learn this from this, this passage, that God's main concern is His own glory and the ultimate good. His main concern is not us feeling good about ourselves all the time. It is His own glory and the ultimate good. Genesis 22, 1. God, it says, came to Abraham to test his faith. Folks, that's how we learn from God whether we have faith, and that's how we grow in faith. Just like pumping iron makes you your muscles stronger, so the testing of our faith and walking with God strengthens our faith. Take, he says, your only son. You know, uh, it starts and it says it was not long after this. And the point is that the only son, some of you who are well versed in Genesis, you're thinking, that's not Abraham's only son. He has a son named Ishmael. But not long after this, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, Take your only son, the one that you love, to a region of Moriah, to the place I will show you, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering there. This was not long after Abraham had sent Ishmael away and was heart-stricken. And God cared for Ishmael. Ishmael was not the son of the promise. And he now has Isaac and Isaac alone, the son of the promise. Your only son, the one you love. When God first called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees toward Canaan, do you know how old Abraham was? He was 75 years old. God promised to make a nation out of him. God promised to give children to him. Do you know how old Abraham was when, he had, when, when uh, she had Isaac? 99. That's a long time to wait. And I'm going to tell you, when, when Abraham got his hands on that child from he and Sarah, he loved that child. And he doted on that child. And he just adored that child. Every time God had come to Abraham, starting in Genesis 12, when God first revealed Himself to Abraham, it was always good, pretty much. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. You're going to be a blessing to the world. And right here in Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham. Abraham, I'm here, he says. Tell me. I love it when you talk to me. Take your only son, the son that you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. But it's even worse here. 
emotionally and mentally for Abraham than just the fact that he loves Isaac so much. This is about killing the promise. This isn't making sense at all. Hebrews 11, in the passage that I read, says that by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Listen to these words. He who received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, it is Genesis 21, just one chapter before what we're dealing with, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, that all of this, this nation, all of this will come through Isaac. And this isn't making sense. And isn't reason higher than God? I mean, isn't it when God doesn't make sense that we enlightened people are able to deduce, therefore, that we stand in judgment over God? That's what 18th, 19th century liberalism was all about, that reason's higher than the Word of God. And God doesn't even reserve the right to be mysterious anymore. But to sit in judgment over God. That is exactly what the temptation of Abraham here is going to be. In our lives, it is very easy to sit in judgment over God when we don't like something. When we don't like something in His Word, we don't care for a particular command. This is not what we would choose. Certainly, this isn't for our times as well as those more primitive times. Certainly, God is is not still commanding us these things. It cramps my style. It takes away my democratic feeling about who I am in the world. And isn't it my life after all? Aren't I able to navigate my life better than anybody else? Even God? Is anybody else out there? This is the reason that Abraham is so completely amazing. Because this situation that he faces is so much more infinitely more stretching than anything God has or will ever ask of me and you. And he doesn't reformat it. He doesn't stand in judgment over it. He doesn't try to rationalize. He sticks with the words of God's voice. He sticks with the word of God. Definition of faith. If you're visiting today, you just wandered into a series about the nature of faith. Welcome. Definition of faith that we're working on off of in this series is what the Bible tells us faith is. Is faith is believing and acting on the word of God, regardless of the circumstances or the consequences. No matter what, it's believing and acting on the word of God, regardless of the circumstances. And the consequences. And, and Abraham did not shout, is there anybody else out there? He didn't even rationalize a way of doing God's will for him a better way than God was telling him to do it. 
He's going to, quote, help God. Maybe he, he was tempted to help God out. I got news for me and you. We don't help God out. And there was lots of wiggle room for rationalization here. There was lots of room to try to put God on the, on the witness stand. He does not do that. He obeyed God. I, I'm just blown away. Verse 3. Take your son, your only son. Verse 3. Very early. Look at the text. Very early the next morning, he saddled up his donkey. Meaning, God told him, he started getting that stuff together the night before, just like you guys like to go deer hunting or duck hunting, and you're going to get up at 4 a.m., so you've got to get out there before those ducks start swirling, you know, because you can't wait to get out there. That's exactly what Abraham did. He got up at 4.30 a.m. and saddled that donkey to go and obey God. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I will tell you, the older I get, and I am 48 years old, and I have said this to you, and you will hear this, I'm frankly just going to interpret my Christian life to you a lot. It's the only one I've got, and I can't make up another one, okay? I'm 48 years old. When I was 20-whatever years old, I, I was learning and knew the principles of God's Word. You know, I was growing in that for sure. But I had not been with people that I knew and could look into their lives and observe very carefully what the consequences of their choices would be over time. You see, I didn't know those people who were in their 40s back then. I didn't know them intimately. Now I do. Because I've known them since my 20s. And the older I get the more I see the results, bad results, in lives of friends of mine who have reinterpreted the Word of God and have navigated around the clear commands of God. And we are all tempted to do this, and we all do it. The question is not whether we're going to do it. The question is whether we're going to repent of it quickly and stop being over God and get back under the authority of the revelation of God. But I want to tell you something. My observation is, it doesn't work. When we become more important than God, we are tracking towards something that is diluted and shallow. When our will becomes the final authority, our future is going to be internally much more barren than it needs to be. The very thing we're grasping by reformatting and dancing around the Word of God, fulfillment in life is the very thing that we are losing by not trusting the timeless truth of God who has it in His heart to glorify Himself and bring about the ultimate good. It's really something. And I will make a statement for you to ponder. And I will not elaborate on this statement at all. But around half of my friends, and these are various things, they're not all bad, by the way, but it's just a fact. Around half of my friends that I was close to in the ministry 20 years ago, around 50% of them are no longer in the ministry. That's not saying you've got to be in the ministry to love the Lord. It's not saying that at all. But I'm going to tell you, we would not be reading about Abraham, we would not be learning from Abraham today 
if he had reformatted and reinterpreted and disobeyed the word of God, and I am deeply challenged by Abraham. Because we all do it. Because we all have that impulse of what will work. You know? Is there any other way? Here's my sentence for you today. That faith is a death. That's what faith is. There's a sense in which faith is a death and faith comes from a death. Let me say that again. Faith is a death and it comes from a death. First is the notion that faith is a death. Can you imagine the thoughts of Abraham on a three-day journey at the speed of a donkey with wood on his back and fuel, everything for the sacrifice. I mean, it's about this fast. You think that he didn't have a hundred thoughts every step of the way for the three days that he had to think about what he was going to do or not do when he got to the place and the Lord God said, this is the spot, do it. I mean, I just can't imagine. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I just would be, day, I, I might be holding in there, okay, I'm going to do this. Day two, I'd just probably get to the place. So stop the caravan. There's two people. There's Isaac, two servants, Isaac. Stop. Nope, we're going back. Nope, I'm going to tell God this isn't right. He did not. The longer he journeyed, in fact, the deeper he became convinced that God would work his will and keep his promises through his obedience to that horrible, challenging command. We learn this in Hebrews chapter 11, and we learn it in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, they get to this place, and he says to his two servants, he says, you stay here, hear these words, we, Isaac and I, we will go and worship over there, and we will return. What's that about? He didn't say, we're going to go out there and worship, and you will only see one person come back. We will worship, we will return And let me tell you, God had no intention of Abraham sacrificing his son. And we'll find that out. God wanted to find out whether Abraham was willing to do what he asked him to do out of the very words of his mouth. And faith is believing and acting on the word of God regardless of the circumstances or the consequences. And this shows us that faith is not only a death... Think about how Abraham had to die to everything inside of him to have faith. It's not just a death because Abraham was commanded to give up his son. It is a death because for us, as we apply this passage in this regard, it means that we have to die to our will all the time to do God's will. When the Word of God says this, and our will says that, 
You can't do both at the same time. It's just that simple. We're either going to do what God says, I'm talking about in all of our lives, in the Scriptures, in the commands of God, or we're going to sit in judgment over the Scriptures and rationalize and justify what we want to do. Don't you hate it when that happens? Don't you hate it when it's that simple? Here's the question under the question for me and you. Do we believe that God's Word is true? And do we believe that God's will is best revealed in His Word? It is His will over mine. It is His Word over my current desires. It is trust that He loves me and knows me best and is working for His glory and the ultimate good, even for me. In the Bible, there's a real simple way that this kind of shakes out. And in the Old Testament, one of the reasons we need the Old Testament so desperately, and not just the New Testament, is it is so clear that it's either God or idols. We're either going to worship the Lord God or we're going to worship idols. And the truth is, is that we tend to hold on to idols, even today. Don't think wood and stone, please. That steal our hearts from God. And I'd like to define an idol today as simply something that has become too important. It's too important. And here's the problem with our idols. So many of them are perfectly good things. That's why we rationalize it so easy. That's why Abraham could have rationalized this so easy. He waited 25 years for the son. It's a good thing. Like our job becomes more important than God. Like our reputation, like our bank account, sport, whatever. These are all what we might call animating factors, things that, that give our lives meaning and purpose. And let me tell you something. You're not going to find any separatism in this church. We believe it's all for the glory of God. Isn't that wonderful? We integrate faith and life, and those things are supposed to, in their proper use, give life shades of meaning, textures of wonder, Snatches of, of, of different kinds of things. They are. But when any of those things take the place of the primary meaning to be derived in a relationship with God, that is when they are too important. That is when they are idols. And that is when they have to be taken down 15 pegs. And there are certain things 15 pegs way too low in our lives that need to be taken up 15 pegs. And that's just because we are sinners wrestling in a fallen world, and we need God to help us to see what those are. Welcome to the human race. But the question is not whether we struggle, it's whether we're going to repent. It's whether we're going to live our lives on purpose, according to God's Word, more than our own feelings and opinions. Now, let me just tell you, to die to something doesn't mean always that you have to give it up. Oh, I love my house too much. We've got to move. 
No, you don't have to move. I love my car. I've got to sell it. You know, I love my deer stand. I've got to burn it. You know, whatever, you know. No, that, that's not what, I, what we're saying here. God wants us to die to those things in our hearts and live unto Him. And when we live unto Him, those things will become meaningful in their proper meaning. It's beautiful because God really is the God that seeks His glory and the ultimate good. What is it for you? What is it? What are those animating dimensions of your life that just give your life meaning that right now in your heart, you know, deep in your heart, are too important? One commentator says this, there are times in life, many times, when our only job is to just take the next step. I love that. We are not called to figure out the big picture or to explain where it will lead. We know in our hearts that God's word, his truth, is calling us in this direction and not that direction. We don't have to see everything. All we need to do is start the three-day journey or three-year journey or 30-year journey or whatever it is of this redemptive and loving pathway of God's grace toward his glory and our good. So faith first is a death. But secondly, faith is rooted in a death. Something that dies in this passage. Verse 7. I mean, how devastating is this? Go back to Genesis 22. Verse 7. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar. He, he got stones. He arranged an altar to the Lord God. Let me go back to the text. He arranged the wood on the stones. He bound Isaac with cords that Isaac was not strong enough to to break so Isaac could not run off that altar or wiggle off that altar. He laid his boy on top of the wood, on top of the stones, he was to kill him with a knife and set the whole thing on fire before the Lord. Abraham is asked a question on the way to building that that altar in verse 7. Father, Isaac says, can you hear a little 12-year-old voice? Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, I don't understand, Dad. We got the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, verse 7. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, God answered, I mean, excuse me, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And how God would provide. And there he bound that child and put that child on the altar. It is one of the most amazing scenes in all of Scripture. Verse 10, he reached out his hand, 
took the knife to slay his son. If you had this in slow motion, it would probably look like this. Not back here. I'm talking about maybe forward motion has already started. He has got that knife. He's going to plunge that knife into his son. He has got that. He takes a deep breath. He holds that knife. He's going. And suddenly there is this voice, Abraham! Abraham! And he's just, you can just see him just shaking. What? I'm here. I mean, don't you love how the Bible is written? An angel called out, Abraham, I'm here! Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him, because now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham looked up at that very moment, verse 13, and there, with his horns caught in some briars in a thicket, he saw a ram, and he went over, and he took the ram, and he slit the ram's throat instead of his son, and placed the ram on the altar, and burned the whole thing before the Lord. And I love how the text says, he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Folks, let me tell you something fascinating about this passage. Remember he said, go to a place in Moriah that I will show you? I'm talking about an exact spot. There it is. Do you know what got built on top of that pile of rocks? The temple. That is the temple mount. That is on the mountain of the Lord where lamb after lamb after lamb was provided for sin. This is incredible. But it is even more than that because it is the picture of another lamb being slain. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptist introduced Him to the world as the Lamb of God. And I'll tell you, if you stand on Mount Moriah where the Temple Mount is, you can look and see with your eyes another place in that Mount. Moriah is kind of a ridge of mountains. You can see with your other eyes a mountain that was called Golgotha where the Lamb of God was slain. Right there where Abraham was stopped. He, could, he didn't know what it was going to be, but he actually could see with his eyes the little ridge on which the Son of God would be slain. And I'm going to tell you something. This is amazing because God would take His Son, the one He loved. The few times that God spoke from heaven about His Son, did you ever notice what He said? This is my, what? Beloved Son. This is the one I love. Listen to Him. And God took His only Son, the one that He loved, and He prepared a sacrifice, and there was nobody else out there to say, don't harm your son. And God took the knife, and He plunged it into Jesus. Literally, we should say, He drove the nails 
into Jesus' hand and lifted him up as a sacrifice for us. So faith is a death. And faith comes from a death so costly, so amazing, so freely given. This is good news, folks, because when God calls us to be His disciple, when God calls us to walk with Him, He's not calling us in our penny little strength, in our penny little self-image, to go and follow Him and do all these wonderful things and stop doing other things. He is giving us His grace. He is absolutely forgiving us, taking us into His family, giving us the Holy Spirit of God, and it's still hard. But it is empowered and it's all the love of God for me and for you. And the commands of God are all the love. They are the law of perfect freedom under the grace of God. It is beautiful. And I'll tell you, that's the kind of God that I can trust. Not that I do all the time. Not a God who constantly suspends me in fear, never knowing whether I've done enough, never knowing how I measure up, but a God who has come to me and to you and sacrificed His only Son as a complete offering. And there is nothing more required to know Him and love Him and walk with Him the every day of our life and forever in heaven. And by His stripes, we are. I look at that table in front of us and I just want to end where we started. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Come, believers. Come, let us keep the festival. Let us keep the feast. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would not only show us the cross in communion and the echoes and supremacy to what happened in Genesis 22, but, Lord, would you, through showing us the preciousness of grace and your initiatory love, would you also show us the beauty of faith? Would you give us desire to want to follow you according to your word for your glory and the ultimate good. Would you reinforce that as you exalt your son in our midst and in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name.